today on Legalese. I want to spend some time talking about the Bruin case that has yet to drop. And this is because there are people on Twitter uh, with a very large audience who have an audience that tend to accept every claim that they make prima facie, who have been making some truly, truly ignorant claims about the nature of the Bruin case. Hey, greetings, and welcome back once again to Legalese. Uh, my name is Bob. Welcome to the show. Uh, and if you are new, I would especially like to welcome you. Uh, now, this is a podcast where we're going to mostly be discussing current events in law, politics, and culture. Now, you can check out this show in its video form on YouTube, Rumble, Odyssey, and Spotify. The audio-only version is available through Anchor and Apple Podcasts. Uh, join the Legalese community over on Locals if you'd like to. And you can do all of those super wonderfully awesome, amazing things, plus read a bunch of articles that I have written and continue to put out, uh, mostly dealing with matters of constitutional law over on Substack. And you will find links to all of those down in this video's description. Now, the reason for this video is mostly because when I stopped by Twitter the other day, uh, to share out some of my content, uh, I admittedly made a series of mistakes. And the first one was that I stayed on Twitter long enough uh, to actually look at people's tweets. And I was on there long enough to see a tweet from a notable YouTuber uh, whose name I, I won't mention to protect his privacy. Uh, I, I'll just refer to him here as, uh, I don't know, T. Pool, we'll say. No, it's too obvious. Let's just call him Tim P., so, I engaged this Tim P. in discussion, uh, and he made an immensely dumb comment, in my opinion, about what he believes uh, will happen when the Supreme Court releases the Jackson abortion opinion and the Bruin concealed carry case. As you can see here, he said, quote, if SCOTUS overturns Roe and Casey, but also rule on nationwide constitutional carry, there will be less rioting. Now, there are just so, so many things wrong with uh, that statement. And unfortunately, since Twitter's 240 character limit is not nearly enough sp uh, space to explain the like 17 different reasons that that is completely wrong in every sense. Uh, and I guess because I am conceited enough to think that just maybe uh, I am capable of doing the impossible and convincing people online espousing erroneous legal and political theories that they are objectively mistaken. And maybe even convince them that by continuing to misinform your followers, you do a disservice to the future of gun rights that you claim to believe in. Now, after uh, some back and forth that I had with this Tim P. fellow uh, about this tweet, where I wanted to ascertain if he was being hyperbolic or ironic or if he really uh, believed this and thought it made sense, uh, it became clear that yes, yes, he and his followers are very completely, very definitely sure that this is right. Despite the evidence that I showed that proved absolutely that wasn't correct. But like I said, 240 characters is not enough time and space to debate a complex issue with one YouTuber 
much less the thousands of drones willing to back his every claim. So I want to briefly cover the relevant background of Bruin, what we can reasonably conclude from the question presented in the request for petition for cert submitted by New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, and in the court's granting of the cert petition, as well as the oral arguments in the case which were delivered last December. Now, this will collectively prove that this case has absolutely nothing to do with constitutional carry, and it will not in any way possibly be able to be applied nationwide. Now, this idea that a Supreme Court opinion will immediately apply nationwide and that it's immediately binding on everyone, even people who are not parties to the case, are based on a very unfortunately common conflation that most people make uh, between a court's judgment and its precedent. So, just to be clear, what he is talking about here is a constitutional and procedural impossibility. And finally, uh, I want to do my best to uh, simply and quickly also explain what I believe a few of the most potential outcomes of the Bruin case will be. And this also gives me a chance to address a larger issue. This is one that regular viewers of this channel will already be uh, very familiar with because it's one I harp on a lot. And this is the very, very common uh, judicial fallacies, fallacies that uh, Tim is espousing. Uh, and like I said, regular viewers should already be very familiar with these concepts, and they are judicial supremacy and judicial universality. And those are concepts I've talked about in a number of past videos, and I've also covered the Bruin case in past videos too, so uh, if you want more information on all of the things that I'm talking about here today, I'll put links down in the description to any episode uh, where I have touched on any of those topics. Uh, this one is really specifically tailored to giving a reply to this particular argument. So let's start with the basics of the case. So we have two petitioners, Robert Nash and Brandon Cook, who each applied for a concealed carry firearm license for the purpose of self-defense. Now the licensing officer denied both applications, finding that neither individual met the proper cause standard required by New York law in order to issue a firearm license for general self-defense. Now, New York courts have defined proper cause as requiring the applicant to, quote, demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community, end quote. So, Nash and Cook subsequently have filed suit in federal court for a violation of their Second Amendment right. Now, the district court dismissed their suit, uh, citing the Second Circuit's ruling in Kalachi, or excuse me, Kalachki versus County of Westchester, and this said that New York's proper cause requirement did not, in fact, violate the Second Amendment. And on appeal, the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit affirmed that decision. So, the main issue at here, uh, the main thing at issue here in this case, 
This concerns a person's right to carry a concealed firearm for self-defense under the Constitution's Second Amendment. And the uh, question presented in the case that the court granted review on reads as follows, quote, Whether the state's denial of petitioner's application for concealed carry licenses for self-defense violated the Second Amendment. And let's just get a little background on the case further. So, except in a very limited number of circumstances, which are simply not at issue in this case, New York state law prohibits the possession of firearms without a license. Now, petitioners Robert Nash and Brandon Cook, who are both members of the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, applied individually for a license to carry a firearm pursuant to New York Penal Law Section 400.00, and in both cases, a licensing officer issued restricted licensings, allowing Nash and Cook to carry firearms for the specific purpose of hunting and target shooting only. And this restricted license allowed the licensees to carry a firearm only when engaged in the specific activities for which the license was granted. Now, Nash and Cook subsequently requested that the licensing officer remove this restriction from their license so they could carry a firearm for the general purpose of self-defense. And in support of his request, Nash even cited a number of recent robberies in his neighborhood and showed that he had completed an advanced firearm safety course. And likewise, in support of his request, Cook cited his experience in safely handling firearms and the completion of various firearm safety courses. And the licensing officer denied both requests, noting that neither Nash nor Cook had proper cause to carry a firearm for self-defense under New York Penal Law Section 400.00, subsection 2F. Now, New York law defines proper cause as requiring an applicant to demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community. The licensing officer found that none of the reasons offered by Nash and Cook for needing to carry a firearm for general self-defense met this proper cause standard. And after the licensing officer's decision, Nash and Cook Uh, and the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, of which they are both members, filed a federal civil rights lawsuit with the United States District Court for the Northern District of New York for a violation of constitutional rights under Section, uh, excuse me, under Title 42 U.S.C. Section 1983. And the District Court dismissed the suit, holding that it was bound by the Second Circuit's ruling in the 2012 case of Kalachki v. County of Westchester, which found that requiring applicants to demonstrate a proper cause in order to obtain a firearm license did not violate the Second Amendment. And on appeal, the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit affirmed the decision. Now, oral arguments uh, were conducted in this case on November 3rd, of 2021. 
So let's get to addressing the first of the two problematic areas of uh, Tim P's statement here. Why am I so certain that any ruling on constitutional carry is absolutely out of the question, as in there's not even a theoretical possibility it could happen in anyone's wildest dreams? Well, when the court granted cert in this case, they only granted review to a limited question presented. And that was uh, what I just read it a moment ago, but whether the state's denial of petitioner's application for a concealed carry license for self-defense violated the Second Amendment. Now, personally, as soon as I saw that grant, I really started to wonder why did the court rewrite the question presented? Now, initially, in the petition for cert, uh, the petitioner's attorney, Paul Clement, framed the issue quite differently. His question presented initially, and this is a quote, whether the Second Amendment allows the government to prohibit ordinary law-abiding citizens from carrying handguns outside the home for self-defense. End quote. Now, there are at least five major differences between Clement's question presented and the question presented that the court granted review on. First, the court's question presented focuses on the state's decision to deny concealed carry license specifically to the petitioners, while Clement's QP challenged the law on its face and as applied. So is the court's decision now limited to an as-applied challenge rather than a facial challenge? Might the court leave open the possibility that other May issue regimes are also unconstitutional? Now, there are some unique aspects of the New York law that would distinguish it from other May issue regimes. So is there a possibility that the court will need to remand for further explication of said regime? And is there evidence uh, that the state improperly denied licenses to these particular plaintiffs? Furthermore, we're left to wonder whether there might be some due process clause argument here. Then again, the question presented referenced the Second Amendment, so a due process issue would not be squarely presented. Now, I see this slippery change as a way for the court to issue a very, very narrow decision that will leave this issue ultimately unsettled. Now, the second way that the uh, question for review uh, deviated from Clement's original question was the court's QP refers to a petitioner could file an application. That category of individual would be limited to natural persons. And since one of the petitioners is the New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, that could uh, really uh, disallow 
uh, at least for that party, the court to provide any kind of relief to them as a named party. And here, the court may well be trying to avoid the associational standing issue. Now, this issue arose in June uh, with respect to abortion providers, actually. Of course, in the court's standing jurisprudence, doctors who provide abortions for others would have third-party standing, but organizations of people who personally exercise the Second Amendment rights would lack the same third-party standing, which makes absolutely no sense. And uh, the third difference, the court's QP refers to applications for concealed carry licenses for self-defense, while Clement's QP referred only to, quote, ordinary law-abiding citizens from carrying handguns outside the home for self-defense, end quote. So obviously the court's question is far more narrow. It only concerns concealed carry licenses. Now, Clement's petition refers to carrying a gun much more broadly outside the home. And by stripping the reference to, quote, outside the home, the court avoids resolving a 13-year-old mystery that dates all the way back to D.C. versus Heller, and that is, what the fuck are sensitive places? And also, the court's question would close the door uh, to a claim of open carry. I, I mean, it, categorically, it closes the door here. But then again, why would the court have even considered that issue in the first place? New York does not permit open carry at all. Now, I, I was... Nervous, and I continue to be nervous, although less so, that uh, this QP is really setting up for a punt. Essentially, looking to remand to consider whether permitting open carry would be consistent with the Second Amendment. Specifically, can New York prohibit concealed carry if it permits open carry? And by the time that case were to return, who knows what might happen uh, if the abortion issue comes out the way we think it's probably going to come out. By the time the court gets around to its next session, we may have 17 justices, which will be more than enough to make sure the court can deny review. Now, the fourth discrepancy uh, is Paul Clement's QP refers to citizens. While there is no corresponding language in the court's QP, so my thought is that perhaps Justice Sotomayor uh, objected to a right that would be limited to citizens. After all, the Second Amendment does not only apply to citizens. It is a right of the people. And in fact, uh, Judge Wood adopted that reading of the Second Amendment for the Seventh Circuit. and the Due Process Clause, which the McDonald plurality used for incorporation, also refers to persons and not citizens. Yet, Justice Thomas's controlling McDonald concurrence relied instead on the Privileges or Immunities Clause, 
which would actually limit it to citizens. And fifth and final, Clement QP refers much more broadly to, quote, ordinary law-abiding citizens, end quote. So again, there is no similar corresponding language in the court's QP. Here, the court may not have wanted to get involved in the precise basis for the right to carry. And furthermore, perhaps it didn't want to have to answer the question, what exactly does ordinary law-abiding mean? Does that category include nonviolent felons? We don't know, and the court ducked the issue. And finally, the court did not accept uh, New York's phrasing, actually, of the QP as well. So this was, in their response from the state of New York, uh, the QP that they submitted reads, quote, Whether the Second Amendment prohibits New York from from requiring residents who wish to carry a concealed firearm in public to have an actual or articulable, no, excuse me, an actual and articulable need to do so, end quote. And that uh, the conjunctive form of actual and articulable as opposed to uh, the disjunctive form of actual or articulable is very important and makes a great deal of difference considering it's just one small change of one small word. So, personally, um, I'm conflicted about this grant. Uh, Part of me feels like I should just be absolutely ebullient that the court is finally granting a real gun case. However, the strange rewriting of the QP has very much tempered my enthusiasm. Uh, And as I've discussed in uh, past videos, uh, especially a video I did that I'll link to called What the Heller, I have become jaded of being burned by Second Amendment cases. And the fact is this grant may be the last time a nine-member court is able to even decide a Second Amendment case. Any punt here will sweep Heller into what Justice Scalia would refer to as the dustbin of repudiated constitutional principles. All right, and now to the uh, reason for the second uh, theoretical, uh, legal, and practical impossibility here. Why is a nationwide ruling from the federal court out of the question? Remember, Tim's er, Tim's exact statement was, nationwide constitutional carry. He's very clear about his phrasing there. Now, New York has what is called a may-issue regime. And what this means exactly is that they will give you a license to carry a gun if you show some sort of a special need. Now, the fact is only eight states besides New York have such regimes on gun laws. These include California, Connecticut, Delaware, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Rhode Island. 
So in regard to whether there is a national impact that could arise, if the high court curtails New York's concealed carry law, uh, the simple fact is that even under those most ideal of circumstances, most states will remain totally unaffected. Since the vast majority of these states only require applicants to pass a background check, uh, and this is what is known as a shall-issue regime. So, the simple fact is that uh, any ruling such as that, uh, just there really wouldn't be any legislation to pass as a practical matter, which is why uh, it really uh, just does not apply. Not only could it not apply nationwide, but there's no sensible reason why we should want it to apply nationwide because it only speaks to such a very limited number of states under a very, very narrow set of circumstances. Now, what's more likely, in my own opinion, is that uh, even if they strike down the May issue uh, concealed carry permit and, and essentially would turn New York into something like a shall issue state, what is most likely to occur is that the state lawmakers will just make it impossible to carry firearms in specific sensitive locations throughout New York City, regardless of whether concealed carry permits become more accessible for future applicants. And again, this goes back to that idea of uh, dangerous weapons and sensitive places from the Heller uh, opinion, the one place where Scalia completely departed from any kind of originalist interpretation uh, uh, at the urging of, or, or really the insistence of Chief, Chief Justice Roberts, but uh, that's really more of a discussion for another day. So, for example, they could designate basically every single place in New York City if they wish as a sensitive place. They could say that you can't carry on a subway in a building, uh, that you're not allowed to uh, go anywhere, you won't be able to carry within 100 feet of a school, which is virtually everywhere, right? Uh, this is going to make any kind of carry virtually impossible, even if it becomes practically possible. And, uh, unfortunately, I think regular viewers of this channel should already know, uh, because I rant about this quite a bit on the show, uh, that there is this belief uh, this very frustrating belief that the court can give any ruling it wants, regardless if it goes completely outside the scope of the case, uh, that the court has granted cert on and has thus taken judicial notice of, and on the belief that, that the Supreme Court's opinions apply to literally everyone, everywhere, all the time, all at once. Now, these uh, two very commonly believed myths about the nature and function of the court itself show that despite the fact that there is literally not a single reason to believe this might be true, still, Tim is proposing uh, this constitutional and procedural impossibility.
Now, what's important here to remember is that despite uh, its constitutional providence and its majestic grandeur, the Supreme Court of the United States still operates like any other court. Although its judgments do bind the parties before the court, its precedents are not self-executing for non-parties. And this distinction between the Supreme Court's judgments and its precedents is often not understood or just straight-up conflated. And this is the result of two legal fallacies that uh, jurists, scholars, and lawyers tend to refer to as judicial supremacy and judicial universality. So, in brief, judicial supremacy uh, is a belief that a simple majority of the court could now declare with finality the supreme law of the land. And additionally, uh, the the, uh, topic of judicial universality can be summed up as a belief that the Supreme Court's constitutional interpretation obligate not only the parties in a given case, but also other similarly situated parties in later cases. Now, these assertions of judicial power that were and remain entirely inconsistent with how every single court functions, including how the Supreme Court functions. So this all starts with the the conflation of two very different concepts uh, that are also often conflated that we just touched on a moment ago, and that is uh, the judgment of the court and the court's precedent. So when Smith sues Jones, there is no doubt that the decision to the case will bind Smith and Jones. Now, this is the basic legal legal principle of estoppel procedure. However, when Smith sues Jones, Bill cannot be bound by that case as he was not a party to it. So, this would violate the basic rules of procedure and, I would argue, of plain old fairness. Yet, when it comes to the Supreme Court, people seem to flip this concept on its head. They will just say, well, the Supreme Court has ruled. That makes it binding on everyone, everywhere. The only problem is that cannot be the case. So, as I said, the Supreme Court's precedents are controlling for all courts. So, when the Supreme Court hands down a judgment... Uh, you may be bound by its precedent if you are taken to court on a related case. And at that point, a state judge or district judge uh, can bind you and essentially uh, enjoin you to comply uh, with this requirement. But that very, very crucial additional step of converting a precedent to a judgment is incredibly important, especially in civil rights litigation, which this is.
though unfortunately, as we have seen, it's simply not very well understood. Alright, well anyways, that's all I really got for you guys today. Uh, if you want to take a second and maybe consider hopping over to Twitter and uh, sharing this video uh, with Mr. Tim Pool's Twitter profile so we can make sure that he and his followers have a chance to maybe pull their heads out of their asses and stop making such ridiculous claims, please feel free to do so. Obviously, I am not saying you should go and harass Tim or spam him or anything like that at all. I do not uh, endorse, endorse that in any way. All I'm saying is maybe just head over there and share this link to the episode. And while you're doing super awesome things that will make me very happy, you uh, could go ahead and make sure that you are subscribed to the channel so you always know when new content comes out. And with the Supreme Court session coming to an end, there will be a lot of new information of new content in the very near future. Also, uh, if you liked this video, uh, just take a moment and hit that little thumbsy uppy button down there. Uh, and if you disliked it, you can go ahead and hit that thumbsy downy button if you want to be a dick. And please, please do feel free to leave me a comment. And let me know what you thought about the episode. I do really always love hearing from you guys uh, and just getting feedback on the episode in general or the topic we are discussing or if you guys want to challenge me on something I said here or ask me a question about something related to these issues. Uh, I always love interacting with you guys in that way. Uh, so, yeah, I guess that's really all I got for you here. So all that's left to do, I guess, is sign out. This has been Bob for Legalese, talking about the Bruin case, and of course, as always, Cartago de Lenda Est.